The worst, most judgmental, most unforgiving thing I have ever done to myself is demand relationship perfection. I felt for years that I was no good at it, to the point that I often wondered if what I needed to do was give up on relationships altogether. What's the point? I can't do this. I'm never going to get it right. After decades of beating myself up, I discovered the most obvious thing that was right there all along. I am demanding of myself something that does not exist. I am flawed and so is everyone else. We get together as family or friends or lovers, we make mistakes, we hurt ourselves, we hurt each other, we learn. This is how we grow. This is love. This is life. Yes, this is life. And today we are featuring one of my favorite guests, Dushka Zapata, with her wisdom about life and relationships. Dushka has become one of the most popular and influential writers in the world, with over 263 million content views on Quora. And her brilliant essays, such as the one you just heard, have been compiled into 15 books. It's a privilege to have Dushka back for the third time on this podcast. And in this conversation, she takes us on a journey through her two most recent books, Please Don't Blame Love and For All I Know. Dushka's unique approach to productivity, creativity, and well-being is based on her own life experiences, and she shares her discoveries in the hopes of helping others suffer less and live better lives. This podcast was originally created to spotlight all the ways that the Cutco Vector marketing community is changing lives throughout the world. Every so often, we'll reach outside of our community to bring you someone who has changed my life. That's just what you'll get today with the amazing Dushka Zapata. Welcome, everybody. I'm really, really grateful to have Dushka Zapata back on the podcast today. Dushka, how's it going? It's going great. It's so lovely to be back. Thank you so much for your time and uh, the expertise and wisdom you will share with us today. We're talking about my favorite subject. Relationships are my favorite thing to talk about because they're so mysterious. Yes, mysterious is a good word for it, for sure. And we are going to talk a lot about your most recent book, Please Don't Blame Love, A Relationship Handbook. Is this your 15th? It is. Um, It's my 15th or 14th because one of the books that I wrote is not really a book. It's more of a manual. It's very short. So if you want to be broad about it, it's my 15th. And if you want to be very exacting about it, it's my 14th. We can call it 15. You were on 11 the first time that we met. It was the boundaries one. Boundaries was the last time you were on 13 at that point. Yeah. um, As far as I know. And uh, before that, we had met and we talked about several of your books. I think we dug into feelings are fickle. Feelings are fickle, Dan. They are, as a matter of fact. Yeah, they do. They do tend to be uh, fleeting, and they change pretty fast. Yeah, I um, wish someone had told me that. <laughs> well, that's what we talked about uh, the first yeah. time we were together. So I'm grateful uh, you're here for a third time. This audience loves your stuff. There are some raving, raving fans of you that uh, have come out of uh, these podcasts, and so. And and I also noticed on Quora back when we first got together, you had maybe 190 million content views on Quora. And now you're up to like 263 million. I am. I know. Views. Yeah. Wow. And you know what, you know what baffles me about it? I mean, baffles in a good way, but I write things that I wish someone had told me that make me suffer less. And I'm like, I think maybe this could be useful to someone. So seeing that people like what I write and find value in it, 
it is very validating to me because I'm like, well, I found it useful. So I think I'm going to write about it in case somebody else finds it useful. So I'm I'm very happy that people find something valuable in what I write because I think life is about finding ways to suffer less, which are mostly related to how we view things and what we choose to make of what happens to us. Yes, exactly. Well, it's not just that people find your stuff valuable, Dushka. People find your stuff truly life-changing. And uh, that's why I'm so grateful to be able to have you here and be able to have you share with our audience today. That's yeah. I, I feel a little bit of pressure, but I'll give it my best shot today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to do what we've done in the past. Have you read some of your stuff and unpack it a little bit? That's a fantastic way to do it because I reading something that I've written in the past, I write better than I talk because I have time to think about what I say. So reading something I've already written is just, you, you make it very easy for me. I'm very grateful for your, for your format. Great. Well, thank you. Well, in the essay we used to open the podcast, you state that the goal of a relationship should never be perfection, that that's probably too elusive. What do you think should be some of our goals in relationships in terms of improvement or growth or anything that comes to your mind? Yeah. First of all, I think that the perfection should be the goal of nothing because it doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. if you make it a goal, it just you're perpetually unhappy and falling short and frustrated. I think the goal of a relationship is to grow and to learn and maybe to live a better life. I think relationships are can be like so fulfilling and you see so you learn so much about another person and so much about yourself. So to me, relationships arrive and they make you a better person. The thing that I want to note here also, because I think about it a lot, is that people tend to refer to broken relationships like I broke up with him. People tend to equate that with failure, like we didn't make it, we failed. And to me, relationships that break up are relationships that changed us profoundly, that made us better people. And so to me, a successful relationship is the one that leaves you a better person, not necessarily the one that lasts the longest. So I don't associate relationship success with longevity. Yeah. I always found it strange that people would go from having these, you know, relationships that were so powerful and impactful in their life. And then all of a sudden you don't even talk to that person anymore. That's so incredible. This is a very, all like I said before, everything about relationships is like so close to my heart, but that is a very interesting thing for me because I keep all of my exes are very, very good friends. Like they are incredibly, incredibly close to me. And I feel like after you make someone basically like the foundation of your life, I can't just not see them ever again. Right. In particular, if we gave the relationship like truly the best shot and we decided together that breaking up and giving it another life as a friendship was the right thing to do, like it tends to work for me that I am good friends with my exes. And what you said is that's the reason. I can't go from like really liking a person and wanting them in my life pretty much all the time to just like something that's close to death, which is, you know, a a breakup where you don't see the person again. You process that as death or as a huge loss because in effect it is, you don't see the person anymore. And I, I have never been able to do that successfully. I keep people close to me, which is probably very strange for some people, but all of my exes are maybe not all, like maybe when I was really young, I don't see them, but my recent exes, they're in my life and we check in and we say hello and we go to lunch and we are just in the, in and out of each other's lives. Yeah. I think that's great. I really do. One of the essays that I found compelling in your most recent book is called, do people get hurt in a healthy relationship? 
This one's on page 179, Dushka. Could you read that one for us? Absolutely. 179. Here it is. Do people get hurt in a healthy relationship? Absolutely. Nobody's perfect. We are human, and as such, we can be grumpy, clumsy, rude, tactless, ignorant, jump to the wrong conclusion, blame, be critical, get defensive, or shut down. Our behavior hurts the people that we love. Hurting those we love creates conflict. Here is the trick, the beautiful trick. What defines a relationship as healthy is not the absence of conflict, but conflict handled well. Conflict handled well creates opportunities to lovingly navigate that conflict. How we manage conflict is how we make our relationships resilient. We learn to pause, to become more receptive instead of more defensive, more respectful instead of careless, to make room for another person's feelings instead of focusing on our own. We learn that there are other perspectives, vantage points, and ideas beyond ours, that seeing things differently is not an act of aggression or defiance. This is not war. I just take up room. We assume responsibility and learn to say we're sorry. We become more self-aware, learn to set ourselves aside so that we can listen. We become better people. We can never stop hurting those we love or feeling hurt because we never stop being human. Yeah, that, that one really resonated for me a lot. And you talk in there about handling conflict well. I'd love for you to unpack a little more about your insights on handling conflict well in a relationship. Yeah, I'm going to give you an example. Dan, the guy that I'm dating now, who also makes drawings for my writing and has illustrated my books and designed the covers. Anyway, that Dan, Dan Rome, and I I was talking to him, I don't know, maybe a month ago, and I was telling him that I don't remember what happened, that I was telling him that he hurt my feelings. And so if someone usually tells me that I hurt their feelings, the first thing out of my mouth is I didn't mean to do that. Oh my God, you know that that was not my intention, right? which makes the hurt feelings about me and not about the person being hurt, right? Mm-hmm. So when I tell Dan, you hurt my feelings or I didn't like this or that, he says, I can absolutely see why you would feel that way and I'm so sorry. And it just instantly takes the air out of my anger. Like I just feel this, it's like so skillful to say something like that. <gasps> I can absolutely see how you would feel that way. I'm, I'm so sorry. And so then everything that comes out of my mouth after that is just so much calmer because I feel that he understood me. So that is a really good example of, of something like that. I, I t- have a tendency, and I think that I'm getting better over time, but my tendency is to defend myself. And it's mostly because I don't want you to think that I would be a person capable of hurting you deliberately. But the fact is that that doesn't matter if you're hurt. It, may, it might matter for us to talk about later, but if you're hurt, I need to push my, my defensiveness aside to make room for the fact that you're hurt. And that's one example. And then another example might be beginning statements with I, I feel, instead of beginning statements with I think that you are. So it's how different is it to say, Dan, I think that was really selfish, to saying that made me feel really left out. It's just a completely different conversation because instead of attacking the integrity of the person, you are t- saying what the person made you feel. Right. And it sounds really basic, but it has completely changed my conversations. And that is another way of handling conflict. The other way of handling conflict is to to basically accept responsibility, which is like very, very simple and so difficult at the same time. Like, why didn't you do this thing that you said that you were going to do? Oh my gosh, you're so right. I completely forgot. I'm sorry. I'll do it right now. Like so much better than, well, why didn't you come home when you said that you, you, when whatever, like, it's just so easy for something, something very small to become nothing or to, or to escalate. And then my tendency is to avoid conflict. 
I'm not scared of it, but I always ask myself, is this worth me discussing it? Like, is this worth really worth me bringing it up? And I realized that I circumvent every important conversation in the name of like not making a big deal out of it. So like I've learned to, and these are, when I say I've learned, I mean, like I'm practicing, like I fall off the wagon regularly, but I'm learning to say, if this is important enough for me to be thinking about it, I should probably be talking about it. And so I say, this is kind of a small thing, but when I called you, you didn't call me back and whatever, you know, I, I was trying to tell you something about me being stressed. And then the other person is like, Oh my God, I, I'm I'm so sorry that you felt that I wasn't listening or whatever. And then the more you walk into that conflict and the more you learn with basic tools, by the way, they're, they're actual tools that you read about, not things that you have to figure out necessarily, but the more you figure them out and the more, the more skillful you apply the tools, the happier your relationship has become. And what is, makes me filled with wonder is that talking to someone about something rather than having that person be angrier at you, you get closer if you manage the conflict well. So you you basically learn that your relationship can resist discomfort. And mm-hmm. you that's what makes relationships resistant. But the, all of these things are things that I just I just didn't know. When I was growing up, I f- believed that a fight was the end of my relationship. Whenever I fought, I basically was like, the winner takes it all. This is, I'm going to fight to the death. This is the mm-hmm. end. And I never knew that it didn't have to mean the end. This is the, the concept of um, low or high distress tolerance. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but when I heard about it, I thought it was super interesting. And low distress tolerance means I cannot put up with any distress because I know that it means the end. And high distress tolerance means we're fighting and we will work it out and we will recover. And the notion of we can recover from this, whether it's big or small, we, are, we can work, we can come together and talk about it and work through it is something that I didn't understand until much later in my life. Yeah. I love that insight about distress tolerance. You said something earlier about you would have previously would have a tendency that if you avoid conflict, you're suffering less, but then you kind of flip that around to realize that if you do, if you don't tackle that conflict, you, we, we all end up suffering more down the road, right? Like th- this is a realization I've had because I, I like you have felt like, ah, it's just not worth it. It's not worth you know, it. Yeah. But it's very right worth there. it. Right. Yeah. It's very worth it. It's your relationship. Look, I, I've, I hear people going, we have the best relationship. We never fight. And I'm like, are you sure that's the thing? Cause never fighting is like, I mean, I'm not saying you have to fight, you know, in an open field in battle every day, but I think we should talk through things that bother us. And I think we should give ourselves credit like basically I tell myself, Dushka, if it bothers you, it is worth it. It is worth the conversation. Yeah, for sure. I feel Dushka that these are things that we have to kind of work on internally to get really good at. And I want to take you into uh, your the, the next essay, which is called Relationships Are an Inside Job. Mm-hmm. It's page 90. Yep. Relationships are an inside job. The things I practice getting in order within myself that have the most impact on my relationships are a solid footing so I can trust myself and assume the best in others. This is the opposite of being led by my insecurities. The knowledge that I'm fully responsible for myself, my wants, my needs, my emotions. I make me happy and I manage whatever I am feeling. I own my mistakes and see where I need to do work. This is the opposite of blame, 
the opposite of attempting to change or control another. Good communication, an ability to speak up, work through conflict, refrain from criticism, know how to ask for what I want. This is the opposite of confusion, misunderstandings, assumptions, and guesswork. Strong boundaries, setting them, enforcing them, and respecting the boundaries of another. This is the antidote to resentment and the sense that I have been taken for granted. A very crisp sense of what I want. This is an assessment of compatibility. The ability to not take myself too seriously. This is humor, lightheartedness, and a perspective which is a saving grace in difficult times. Please note that every single one of these things is an inside job, me looking within to improve my relationships. Me improving my relationship with me is the only way I can ever contribute to improving my relationship with others. That one is so well put, Dushka. And we've talked a little bit about the uh, idea of good communication, which you talk about in here. We've already talked a little bit about that in terms of tackling conflict and how to do it. Um, I'd love to have you talk more about good communication from the standpoint of things like asking for what you want, not making assumptions, gaining clarity, avoiding misunderstandings, that whole side of good communication. Could you speak to that for a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I actually am working on a book about communication as it relates to, to relationships. I think that it's just its own huge like tone to discuss. Yep. But just very briefly, using this little paragraph as an outline, first off, it's very difficult for me to ask what I want if I don't know what it is. And that's what I mean by clarity. You just really need to get clear on what exactly it is that you're asking for or fighting for or arguing about. Like, what is it? And I find that when I'm arguing about something, it usually is something very primal. Like, it's not the thing, but it's like the thing behind the thing. So, for example, if you don't call me back, it's not really about you not calling me back. It's about me feeling like I don't matter to you. And I feel like getting to the core of the issue allows me to make a distinction of if the problem is me or if the problem is you, meaning me me having to work on an insecurity or you doing something that hurts me. Because there is a sense of calibration of like, how angry is this making me and how much, how reasonable is that, that I think is very important to keep an eye on. So. Mm-hmm. If someone doesn't call me back and I'm like, you know, crying all afternoon, something there is out of whack. And it doesn't mean that it's not worth it. It means that I need to take a look at what exactly it is that's making me feel so devastated, right? So that's an example. Knowing to ask for what I want. I think that we make a lot of assumptions. I think that it it is customary to expect another person to know what you want. So, well, how how come you didn't know that today I wanted flowers? Like, if I tell you what I want, then it's not the same. And all of those conclusions are are quite toxic because what you're demanding is that another person read your mind and just like automatically know what you want. So spelling out what you want, Friday is our anniversary. And I know that typically we don't celebrate, but I would really like you to take me out to dinner this time because we haven't really spent much time together. That's like a clear ask instead of, well, it's our anniversary. And like, clearly he's going to take me to dinner because we haven't seen each other. It's completely different. Yeah, so taking the guesswork out of it, taking the assumptions out of it, having the capacity to say, you know, I'm really angry and I don't know why. I think I need to talk about this tomorrow. I think I need to sort myself out first and maybe sleep on it. So all of those things are tools that I use. Oh, by the way, I heard so much growing up, never go to bed angry, never go to bed angry. So whenever I fought, I basically fought till the fight, till I had nothing left in me. And I'm like, that's just... Never go to bed angry. It's just terrible advice. Like the gift in saying, you know what? I'm exhausted. 
I'm feeling really out of sorts and things feel out of proportion. Do you mind if we talk about this tomorrow? Can we just like put it, set it aside and maybe watch something on TV and talk about it tomorrow? And it works wonders. It is like completely different to talk about something when you're over morning coffee, when you just got up and you have a clear head, than to talk about something when you have the day on top of you and you're overwhelmed and you're angry and hurt. Just, just take a pause. So yeah. pause is another huge thing in communication, I think. Yeah, great stuff. The, the whole idea of assumptions is something I've been talking about and thinking about going all the way back to first reading The Four Agreements, which I know you and I both really Yeah, love I that love book. that book. It's so smart. Yeah, but when you assume somebody's going to know what you want and you're not clearly specifying, you're assuming based on your own reality, right? Exactly. Which might not be their reality at all. Let me take it a step further. If I make an assumption on your behalf, oh, I think Dan is going to say this or do this, I actually replace listening to you with what I think about you, Mm -hmm. which means that I don't see you or hear you. My assumptions about you actually erase you. Think about that. Think about how deeply unsettling it is to be in a relationship where you're like, you're, you're trying to replace what I actually, why didn't you just ask me? Right. You know? So, and asking yeah. is really not that hard. Asking is so much easier than reading somebody else's mind. You know, asking is easier than being clairvoyant. Asking is right there. It's just in words. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So well said, such a simple idea, but truly compelling that I hope people can really take that one in. You wrote yeah. something in another part of your book somewhere that I had starred, which was, when I don't clearly state what I want, I not only leave it unsaid, I encourage the other person to be unable to deliver. Absolutely. So the people around us want to love us. And when they don't love us in the way we want them to, it's usually because they don't, they don't don't know what we want. I mean, I'm shocked at the number of times that I'm like, I don't know, with a friend, I'm like, you know what? I really would love to see you this weekend. They're like, Tushka, absolutely. What about Sunday? People who love you, give you what you want. We live surrounded by people who want to give us what we want. They just don't know what it is. Yep. Exactly. Just uh, again, so uh, so well said. I think that this whole, th- what we've talked about so far uh, leads to a new paradigm that I think you call a conscious relationship. And you wrote about this, it's page 22. Uh, the yeah. essay is called, What is a Conscious Relationship? Yeah. And I want to start by saying that the questions are on Quora, which means that whatever's in the question I did not coin So sometimes they ask a question such as, what is a conscious relationship? And I think that's a very interesting way of putting it. I think I can come up with an answer. I relate consciousness to being aware, to being aware of what I'm doing and basically the opposite of being on automatic. So this is how I answered the question. In a conscious relationship, I'm awake, self-aware, curious, and flawed. I question my own thoughts. I'm exhibiting self-compassion and have a rich life outside of my relationship. I don't expect perfection from anyone, not from me, not from my partner, and not from our story. Expecting perfection is the opposite of accepting life as it is, and as such, it is a form of unconsciousness. I know what I want. I am clear about my values and what I am looking for, even as I change. I take responsibility. This was me. It was something I dragged in from a past experience, or something related to an insecurity, or a conclusion that I jumped to. I am so sorry. I'm responsible for my emotions. I'm not looking for someone to make me happy, take care of me, or complete me. I'm not looking for someone to save. I take time to figure out what I need and express it as clearly as possible. 
I am respectful and loving when my partner is upset or uncomfortable rather than diminishing or denying his experience. I fight well, which includes everything from clear communication to making sure we both feel supported rather than abandoned during and after a fight. The opposite of a conscious relationship would be the belief that a soulmate is the solution to listlessness, an absence of self-awareness, making approval a priority, blaming others for how I feel, believing that a fairy tale is romantic, even when real life is actually where it's at. Yeah. Can you tell us, Dushka, about your own experiences in developing a conscious relationship? Yeah. um, Let me take a look at this question and see if I can give you examples in each case. Well, we talked about being flawed, about how expecting something to be perfect and fairy tale like is a form of unconsciousness. Questioning my own thoughts, what I'm what I mean by that is if I think something and, and the thought is mine, I automatically assume that it's real. And if I'm more conscious, I can say, is that actually true? Like, you don't love me anymore. Wait a minute. Is that really, really? Is that really what we believe? You know, that kind of pause, right? Mm-hmm taking responsibility, which is, I didn't do this because you, whatever I did this, I did this. It was me assuming responsibility, responsible for my emotions, which is this notion that other people are supposed to make us happy. This notion that we are supposed to save someone, saving someone. You can't save someone. You can't try to save someone without, without becoming an enabler. And an enabler is someone who separates someone from the consequences of their own actions. So if you try to save, that automatically puts you in a place where you are enabling. When we have a fight with someone, we tend to like leave the house or be very angry at them. And we forget that we we love them. Like, why are we putting them in a place where they will suffer? So part of handling conflict well, I think, is making sure that the other person never feels unsafe. I don't want you to feel that I'm going to leave you. I don't want you to feel that I'm hurting you deliberately. I don't want you to feel that this is going to be a detriment to our relationship. I want you to feel that we are in this together and that even if I'm angry, we will navigate this together. I want to make sure that I don't do anything that makes you feel like you are, that you are not safe. And that, I think that when you fight and you think, how can I make sure that I'm not scaring the other person or making them feel basically unsafe is I think really important in fighting well. And then making approval a priority, I think, is a form of unconsciousness because instead of asking myself, what is it that I want? I'm asking, what does the other person want? And how can I give them that so that they approve of me? And basically, if I'm focused on what others want, I don't realize that I have wants and I am not listening to myself. And then I already said the thing about the fairy tales. I don't know if that answers the question, but... Yeah, yeah. How about like, do you mind talking a little bit about your current relationship with uh, Dan and just how, how how some of these things have come into practice for you guys? Well, the beauty of Dan and I is that we both have had long-term relationships before we met each other. Like we didn't meet in our twenties. We both came at the relationship from a place of, we want to do this well. We've learned from mistakes of the past. We are not the people that we were when we were 20. And I, and I feel like that in and of itself is, I was talking to a friend the other day and she was telling me, you know, what's it like to date, you know, when you're not in your twenties. And I said, well, now I know what I want and I have more money. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's like, it's just like, it's just so easy. It's just so, I mean, it's not easy in the sense that like re- relationships are hard. I don't want to make, I don't want to downplay the fact that relationships take work, but it's easy in the sense that 
there are a lot of games that we are not interested in playing anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So you offer a lot of great points on forming a conscious relationship. I, I would assume these are things that anybody in any relationship, whether it's a loving spouse relationship or whether it's relationships with friends, like these are things that people can communicate about and talk about what is it that they want, right? And, and how can they build the, the kind of relationship that they want or the kind of friendship that they want or the kind of working relationships that we want? The these kind are all of parent they want to be? Discuss. Right. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that in the book, from the book is really about a romantic relationship, but I think that everything I say in the book applies to any relationship. I mean, For we sure. want friendships that are closer and that I'm not expecting that my friend is going to make me happy. I'm not like, I think that the, the cardinal rules apply in every relationship. Yeah, indeed. And, and you have some really pr great practical advice on how to practice these skills. It is, there's an essay on page 298 and it is called A Few Things to Practice. Yes. I'd love to have you share that one next. Yes. A few things to practice. Notice when you place yourself at the center of the story. This looks like any attempt to control an outcome, fixing, helping, changing. It means demanding that someone need meet my needs. That's my job. It means keeping score. Placing myself at the center of things causes disconnection. Practice getting better at listening. No interruptions. No thinking what you're going to say next. No defending. No arguing. No saving. Just listen. Start any discussion with your feelings rather than his behavior. Is he, if he's been working late, say, it makes me feel like I don't matter to you, rather than you are so careless with our relationship. Try positive statements instead of negative statements. Instead of all you ever do is spend time with your friends. Try, I would love it if we could set aside time just for the two of us. Point out the good instead of the bad. Instead of asking him to change or adjust and improve, tell him all the things you appreciate about him. The more personal, the better. Try something new. Resist the rut of always doing the same things, even if it feels comfortable and familiar. And try new things. Go on that hike you've never been on. Extra points if you learn something new together, like a new language, and then plan a trip where that language is spoken. I love how you create this vision of a positive focus in the way that you talk, in the way that you think. I feel like the default for most others is the opposite. It's around finding what's wrong, complaining about what's wrong. How does someone flip that around in their life? That is so true. I realized that what I heard growing up, I mean, in my house, but also elsewhere, is that we zone into whatever it is that we don't like. Oh, can you please keep the toilet seat up? And can you put your dishes in the dishwasher like this and not like this? And the exercise of telling the other person, I, I love that you get up every morning early to make me coffee. Thank you so much. Or I love that yesterday you listened. And when we, when I tell you something that hurts, you always, you don't try to defend yourself. You acknowledge how that might've been hurtful. And if you start telling the other person what they're doing well, it just completely changes what you notice. I mean, obviously it feels really different to the other person because instead of being constantly criticized, they feel like you're seeing what they're doing that when they're trying, does that make sense? Like they're, you're seeing the good, but also for you, it starts to change what you notice. That's why I call it a practice. Like at first you're like, but I'm used to complaining. This is really hard. But if you stop the complaining and stop the nagging and you start noticing the good and start voicing the good, you start noticing it more. So it becomes easier. And it just yeah. completely changes the dynamic of your relationship. It's brilliant. And, and this truly, as you were saying before, applies beyond just a you know loving, intimate relationship, applies it 
super well into parenting and also applies into other relationships uh, for Absolutely. sure. But also, have you ever witnessed someone change their behavior as a result of being nagged? That's maybe, not maybe in, the, maybe in the short term, but it's not not a long-term strategy. It's, it's not a long-term strategy. And all the other person feels is constantly inadequate. They feel constantly inadequate. When you're being nagged, you feel constantly not inadequate. And I'm saying this as a spouse. I'm saying it as a, as a daughter. I'm saying it as a friend. Like, it's awful when someone, you know, is attempting to fix you, change you, improve on you. And it's very beautiful when someone thoughtfully notices something that you are doing well or that they appreciate about you. Even I appreciate you is so much better than, oh, you drive me crazy. By the way, there is an incredible article called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and it's written by John Gottman. He has founded an organization. He and his wife, I just don't know exactly in what order it happened, but I'm going to say he and his wife founded an organization called the Gottman Group. And it's incredible. It has so many things that I've learned over just simple tools of how to like do this relationship thing better. But I completely forgot where I was going with this. Oh, yeah, I remember. And they wrote an article called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And it's four behaviors that we all show in our relationships, but that are the most likely to predict the end of a relationship. And they are criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. So those four behaviors, they say that if they sit down and observe a couple, they can tell you with certainty if the couple's going to make it or not, based on the frequency of the presence of these four relationships. And I cannot recommend that people read this article. It's so good and it's so simple. But anyway, of those four, behaviors, the one that predicts the end of the relationship the most, or at least the death of a relationship where the people are still staying together, but they're dead, is contempt. And that is looking down at someone. So the, oh, can't believe that you did that. That put down is extremely corrosive to relationships. And I have been on both sides because I'm human. And sometimes I'm like, I can't believe you did that. And sometimes someone says that to me and it feels horrible. Right. It is so awful to to put someone through that or to do it. So the practice of not showing contempt towards the people that you love, I think is life-changing, but both for you and for the other person. This is what yeah. I mean. Like you become a better person by learning these things. For sure. For sure. Amazing. Amazing. These things we've read so far have been from Please Don't Blame Love, your most recent book. I want to shift over to For All I Know just yes. uh, for the rest of this conversation. And I think that one topic I want to ask you about is how a lot of people seem to get stuck in a fixed mindset based on their past. And you have an essay on page 50 called, Does Your Past Define You? Yes. And I, have, I want to tell you, you, what page did you say? 50. Yeah. I want to tell you that this book is called, hold on, let me just go to number 50 because I can't do two things at a time especially not if one of them is trying to count. Okay, this book, for all I know, A Shebang of Checklists for Life, is actually a book of checklists. It's all lists. The entire book is lists, and it was really fun to put together because sometimes I think in the form of lists, I think in like bullet points, and then I try to elaborate. And one day I was like, why am I writing more when I don't need to? I should just collect these and put them together. So it's really fun, and it's very easy to like read an essay. They're all very short. Yeah. Anyway, does your past define you? My past defines me only in that it makes me resilient. My past, rather than holding me back, grants me experience. My past is proof that I can both evolve and heal. My past does not make me unlovable. 
Instead, it's evidence of my strength. My past is not something to be ashamed of. It's what makes me both empathetic and compassionate. My past affects my future only in that it has given me practice in managing change and in integrating what has happened to me with who I want to be. Such great stuff, as always. How do you respond, Dushka, when someone says something like, well, that's just the way I am? Yeah, I hear that a lot. And I, I, I think it's an example of defensiveness in relation to, to the previous conversation. But I don't know. I feel like, do you know what, um, hold on, let me think of this word. Neuroplasticity is? Yes. So our brains are elastic. Mm-hmm. We change. It's not that just that we change because we work at it. We change even if we don't work at it. We change even when we, we don't want to. Everything changes. You have no idea the capacity that we have to recover and to heal and to change. Anything that you are, you can change. Anything, given the practice. It all What it takes is practice. You can change your insecurities. You can change your habits. You can change anything you want. And it's one of the most beautiful parts of us. So saying, I'm not going to change the way I am, denies one of the most beautiful parts of us. Indeed. Um, that's such a great insight. And it's just something I think everybody really needs to, to ponder and take to heart. Um, because otherwise, you know, we do, we, we get stuck, right? And I just feel like there are a lot of people um, that I've encountered over my life that have a real fixed mindset. Yeah, I mean, I've been stuck. I've been stuck multiple times. And most of the time that I get stuck, I get stuck because I believe something that isn't true. You know, this is never going to change. I can't do anything about this. We can plot our escape. If we can't change something fast, then we can plot our escape. Yeah. I think our past is so compelling because it's obviously shaped us into who we are right now. But our past, it's by definition, it's past. It's over. It's done, right? Everything that happens from now is our own decision. And we have agency over where we go, over who we become, and by and large, over our lives. Yeah. And I I think a lot of people go through really awful, scarring things. And I understand that. But I also think that given the habits and given the the self-awareness, there's a lot that you can do to put yourself in a better place so that you don't become a victim of what once happened to you. Right. Yeah, certainly when we talk about this stuff, it's by no means to diminish the kinds of experiences that people have had in their lives. The reality is that we can find examples of two people that have had the exact same experience and one of them used it as a reason to decide they were never going to become anything and the other one used it as a reason to decide they were going to become amazing and change the world, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I just think that this whole idea of uh, our past has shaped us into who we are and we should value that. Like you said, it's, it gives, it makes you resilient, right? It grants you experience. I mean, there's so many good ways that you have of viewing the past and then making that, that shift from that point forward to say, well, where I go from here is up to me and I have that control. I once saw an interview with Jim Carrey, whom I don't know a lot about, but I'll talk about this interview specifically because I thought it was super fascinating. So Jim Carrey made a movie about a character that I can't for the life of me remember what the character was, but he was basically in character for the whole time that he was making the movie. And he was very affected by it afterwards because he didn't know how to step out of that character and just struggled with who he was, who he wanted to be. And in the exercise of 
basically stepping out of this character that he worked so hard to become for the movie, he realized that Jim Carrey was also a character that he had been had worked on being. And I just found that such an interesting insight that these people that we are are the people that we are because of our stories and how powerful it is to decide to change our story so that we can change who we are. And I think that there's a lot that we can do to change who we are. And I think that relationships are a tool for that. Relationships really shift us from being one person to being another, which is why they are the single, the single thing that can make us happier in life. In other words, the better our relationships, the better our life. Indeed. Very, very powerful. I feel, Dushka, that this, the elements of sort of personal evolution we've talked about today can sometimes be very uncomfortable, that there's sort of an inertia you have to overcome to get into some of these practices, some of these habits. And you have an essay that I personally viewed as one of my favorites. It's page 76. It's called Comfortable Being Uncomfortable. Yes. Comfortable being uncomfortable. I don't ever get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Rather, I come to terms with discomfort as the price to pay if I want to grow. I remind myself that if I'm uncomfortable, I will make my comfort zone bigger. Just because something doesn't feel right does not mean I should avoid it. Just because I don't like doing something doesn't mean I should never do it. Just because I'm afraid or nervous is not enough of a reason not to try it. Just because something is difficult doesn't mean I should run from it. Just because I have never done something doesn't mean I shouldn't try it. Just because something is going to suck doesn't mean it won't be valuable. Just because something is risky doesn't mean it's not worth doing. I tell myself this will be awful and that is okay. This is the logic I use when I have difficult conversations, when I try something new, when I leave a job I know for a job I don't, when I tell someone how I feel, when I deem it important to go to a social event and I would rather stay home, when I do things that would be easier for me not to do, such as accepting a speaking opportunity, and when I set a boundary that makes me feel like I'm being selfish. After doing something hard, I always feel proud of whatever discomfort I overcame. I love the last line, the the perspective of that. I feel like as I read all the rest of this essay, my mind was saying, man, this is easier said than done. Like, how have you developed developed this practice, this habit in real life? Well, the quickest example that comes to my mind is the fact that I'm very introverted and I would just rather stay home. And I would rather be writing than pretty much anything. But I also really like people and I really, I have friends that I love and I go, you know, go to their birthday parties and I go to their dinners and I'd I'd kind of rather not. And I feel like if I gave into never being uncomfortable and just doing what I want, I would be missing out on a lot. And that's what, where this came from. Of course, there's other things that I don't want to try that I've never been interested in that wouldn't be very good for me. Right. But I think that there's a lot of things that have made my life wider and that my preferences can circumscribe my life if I let them. Yeah. I think to just that reminder that after I've done something hard, I feel more proud of what I've done. I feel like this was good. And and the more that we do that, the more reinforcement we get for the next time. And we're able to take on bigger and bigger challenges, bigger and bigger elements of discomfort in order to get to where we want to be. Yeah. I'll tell you something else. I have a thousand secret sources of pride. I think that there's millions of things that are very easy for other people that are very difficult for me. Um, An example is anytime I use an Excel spreadsheet, like I don't, filling out a form online is my definition of hell. It's just horrible. Whenever somebody's like, can you please sign this document? Or can you please add, 
can you please populate cell number five of this document or whatever? I emerge from my computer feeling like a superhero. I'm like, I cannot believe that I opened the document, put the information into the right cell and saved it. So I think we all have these like things that are tiny for other people that are really big for us. And I think we should celebrate that. Yesterday, I told you uh, earlier when we were talking, I told you that yesterday I had this like kind of really scary medical incident. I just saw this like circle of, that looked like a kaleidoscope. And I, I, I had like moments of like a vision loss and I had this kaleidoscope looking. And anyway, to make a long story short, I went to the doctor and they told me that I, it was a migraine aura. But everything that I did to get myself to the doctor, like have this experience, not wave it off, not ignore it, not tell myself, oh, Dushka, you're being a hypochondriac. Just get over it. I was like, I think I should really go to the doctor. And so I made a series of decisions that ended in me going to the doctor and the doctor saying, this is a migraine aura and nothing wrong with your retina and you're going to be okay. And I was like, I feel so proud of the series of decisions that I made to not dismiss something that could have been really bad. So that's another example. Like if there's something worrying about you, about your health, just go to the doctor and rule it out and then feel really proud that you got yourself to the doctor. Yeah. Yep. One of many great examples of ways that we could implement what you've just shared. So really great stuff, Dushka. I love uh, the stuff that you share all the time. And I feel like this has been really, really fantastic. I know, and you know, that a lot of my audience is pretty young. The, particularly the the Cutco part of our audience is a lot of people who are between like 18 and 30. And sometimes social norms can very powerfully influence their behavior. And you have an essay you've wrote about this. It's the last one I want to have you read here. It is on page 94 and it's called Social Norms. Yeah, I want to say that I think we are all, regardless of age, a victim to social norms. So... You said 94, right? Yeah, page 94. Here it is. Social norms. Social norms have a way of disconnecting us from ourselves. Here are some examples. Allowing, what will everyone think of me to guide what I do or don't do? So for example, following through on a wedding despite my sense of doom because the invitations have already been sent out. Keeping myself busy so I can seem important instead of listening to to when I need to slow down, pause, think, rest, lounge, or loiter. Feeling like failing or quitting is not an option when failing is a part of any learning process, indivisible from true progress, and quitting is often the only healthy and sane course of action. Choosing a profession, such as a doctor or a lawyer, that's not what I want, and wondering why I feel listless and empty at the end of a grueling day. Believing that putting myself first is selfish instead of healthy, and that sacrifice is virtuous, necessary, and a sign of loyalty, and then wonder why I always feel taken advantage of. Refraining from saying no in an effort to not seem rude or off-putting, and then having to deal with overwhelming resentment when I find myself doing things I don't want to do. Spending money on things I cannot afford, an expensive car, an expensive house, an expensive wedding, in an effort to make an impression. Presenting myself a certain way on social media, to contribute to the sowing of a collective sense of inadequacy, instead of using social media as a way to connect with people who feel all the things I feel. Connection is better than envy. And then I'd have to admit my life is not perfect and that sometimes I too feel lost. Mm. The last paragraph really like resonated deeply for me. It's something I think I see with a lot of the younger people that I get a chance to work with. And there was a lot of things in here that I think reflected on my own self and my own life. So it really was a powerful essay to read. I feel like it's hard for 
a lot of people to present their authentic selves, particularly on social media, as you reference here, because there's some messiness associated with presenting our authentic selves. It's not this perfect vision, right? Like I run a large organization. People look to me as a role model. They are supposed to think that I have this like great and perfect life. And yet it's not. I have all the same challenges everybody else has. And it just seems like it's very difficult for people to really present their authentic selves, whether it be through social media or even just through our day-to-day interactions. Why is that such a difficult thing? And how can we move past that? Just to take it from the top, I think we all have two responsibilities, right? One is to use social media to connect and to just tell the truth of who we are, because people can relate to us not feeling at our best, right? So one is I need to contribute to social media by saying things that are not, that reveal my life is not perfect. But also I have a responsibility to be really careful about who I follow so that instead of feeling despair or inadequacy, I feel inspired. Mm-hmm. And I think that those two things are really important. And then your second question was, why do we feel, well, I think that the, the primal fear that we all live with is I think that I'm not enough. And I think that we are constantly attempting to show evidence that we are enough to counteract our fear. So the short answer is, I think it's fear. Mm. Fear, like what type of fear? What fear that I might fear? not be enough, fear that I might not have enough, fear of being inadequate, fear of being unlovable, just universal fears. And of course, if we compare ourselves to the most successful people that we follow or that we see, well, we won't be like them. We won't. There's always going to be somebody who has more success or more influence or more money or whatever it might be. And, and so I just feel like that the comparison that social media sort of elicits is, is a sort of toxic part of that, that part of our lives. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot we can do to make sure that our feed does not elicit that. In other words, we have power over choosing what we are seeing. So instead of looking at things that make me feel inadequate, I make it a point to choose things that make me feel, oh, this is really inspiring or this is really beautiful. Like we curate our own feeds. We and the, you know, the people that we love in our lives, you know, have the power to do something better with social media that what, it, that what we're letting it do to us today. Yes, indeed. Well, Dushka, I'm grateful that at the top of my feed every day, is your essay. Some of my friends call it the Daily Dushka. Did you read the Daily Dushka? That's um, so nice. And that and that you you don't just present your successes and your lessons and you know things that uh you're good at, but you also are willing to share your difficulties and your challenges and the things you've overcome and where you've you know made mistakes and you you present this really authentic view of a human being through your social media and through your writing. And that's one of the things that uh, I really love about you and what you are sharing. Thank you. I I heard you. I really appreciate it. To close, I want to read you one essay that I I really like because I like that it's just very simple and very short and it's called Emotional Maturity. Yeah, sure. Thanks for the bonus. (laughs) I was like, it can't be the last one. We haven't read Emotional Maturity. Okay, to any degree, let me repeat that. To any degree, a tiny little bit, a lot, To any degree, practice the following. More responsibility, less blame. More truth-telling, less truth-smudging. More boundaries, less people-pleasing. More awareness regarding what I need, less pushing aside what I need. More validating myself, 
less expecting others to validate me, more self-care, less diminishing it as selfish, more compassion, less berating myself, more forgiving, less grudges, more self-forgiving, less regret, more awareness of my patterns, less falling into my patterns, more pausing, less reacting, more this is not about me, less me-centric, more asking, less assuming, more self-evaluation, less judgment of others, more surrender, less control, more flexibility, less rigidity, more resilience, less despair, more self-trust, less self-doubt, more learning, less coasting, more acceptance, less inner war. Hmm. So well said, Dushka. You have an incredible way of taking complex life subjects and challenges and distilling it down to such simple, direct language that I think anybody can comprehend and can ponder and can implement one step at a time to improve their life and to, as you like to say, suffer less. Um, yeah. And it's just uh, your, your writing is so compelling. I'm a huge fan. Uh, really respect what you do and grateful that uh, you've taken time for this audience once again here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for talking to me and thank you for inviting me and thank you for reading what I write. All right. There you have it, folks. The great and legendary Dushka Zapata. I trust that you loved that conversation as much as I did. I think Dushka is just brilliant and uh, really get a lot out of her writing. Enjoyed this conversation for sure. I'm not going to attempt to add to the stuff Dushka said. I'm just going to say that there were three things that struck me here that resonate for me the most as I am just contemplating the conversation. One is clarity, right? The importance of defining what it is that we want in our relationships, what it is that we want in our lives, and then learning to make sure we're communicating that clearly, that we're asking versus assuming. I also appreciated where she talked about handling conflict well, and the distinction that rather than avoiding conflict with the illusion that we will suffer less, it's important for us to be able, when we feel something in our bodies, when we feel something in our heart, when we feel something in our mind that should be brought up, that we find a way of discussing it in a positive way, framing it correctly with the right demeanor, the right words, and that we learn to work through those things because that's a part of us building the kind of life, building the kind of relationships that we want. It sort of spins out of that idea of clarity of what we want. And as you work toward that process, remembering the concept of neuroplasticity, that we can change anything you are, you can change. If there's anything about yourself where you felt that tendency to say, well, that's just how I am and you're resigned, well, you don't have to stay that way. There is a road to a better way to live. There is a road to evolution and improvement in all facets of our lives. And we should all be walking that road. You might walk it at a different pace than somebody else, but the road to improvement, growth, changing your life for the better is something that I think we can all be working on all the time. I'm going to end today with one more Dushka essay. You'd probably rather hear her read her essays than me, but there's one more that I thought would be great that I want to share. And it is from the book For All I Know. It's page eight for any of you that have the book. It's called 
words for my younger self. The single most powerful, most tectonic thing I can tell you is that everything you do every day will add up. Think carefully about what you want to do every day. There is a world of power and transformation in learning how to pause. Before reacting, pause. Don't believe everything you think. Question everything, in particular your own thoughts. Spend no time, quote, being right. The truth is many contradicting things are just as accurate. Learn as much as you can about boundaries. They are the key to two things you will need forever, healthy relationships and self-love. You do not need to exert any kind of effort to get someone to love you. When anyone loves you, how they love you is who they are, not who you are. You will forget this and believe how others love you reveals something about you. It doesn't. People do not love you the way you want them to. They love you the way they can. It's normal to outgrow friends. Fear is not a good decision maker. Feelings feel like this is the way things will be now, but they are in fact fleeting. Your life has its own cadence. It does not look like the cadence of another person's life, and that's okay. Trust that. And the most important relationship you will ever have is the one you have with you. Stand up for you. Learn to trust you. Love yourself. If you enjoyed Dushka Zapata, please revisit our two previous conversations, episode number 188 about personal evolution or episode number 330 about boundaries. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast today. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 